Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. What does the word disruptive mean to you? It means going beyond the ordinary, going beyond the status quo. Not thinking in the conventional way, not just sort of following the herd. Disruptive means shaking things up, you know? Disruptive entrepreneur is somebody who sees the problem and embraces the problem with a new way. Shake up and awakening. Quality will take care of itself and you'll go from being disruptive but also profitable. When you use your own reservoir of talent, when you love what you do, then you disrupt. Mix it up, change it up and dominate. And now, your host, eight times best-selling author and double world record holder, Rob Moore. Hi, it's Rob, and as it's my themed week of money, launching my brand new book, Money, what we thought we'd do for you is give you the chance to ask me any question you've got about money. This was in the Disruptive Entrepreneurs community, the progressive community, on one of my pages, and you've submitted the questions that you've got that I can help you with around money. So this episode is the first part where I'm gonna be answering all your questions about money. They're very varied, they're wide. I think that you'll definitely get some great benefit from some, if not all, of the answers. So let's get on with your serious questions about money, part one. Hi, Conrad, he asked, how do you know when you've made enough? Okay, so I like to look at a balanced equation of money and life, and the reality is that if you work out your overheads, of everything that you've currently got and times it by between two and three, you probably therefore, when you earn that money, have enough to comfortably live out the rest of your life. But every 15 years, it needs to be doubled because inflation will roughly halve the value of money every 15 years. So let me explain that one more time simply, but I've got another answer to the question. So you work out your current overhead, your mortgage, your school fees, you know, your car loans, everything. You times it by either two or three, and that should give you a decent, good, comfortable, at some points even opulent lifestyle. But every 15 years, inflation will roughly halve the value of money, so it needs to be twice that every 15 years. That's if you want a comfortable life, and you you want enough money, but you don't want to get stuck into the trap of more, 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 more. But the second answer is you'll probably get stuck into the trap of more, 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 more. Because I remember the first time I ever did this exercise that I've just explained to you. And I needed three and a bit grand because I had no overheads, really, because I was in my 20s and, you know, had a small mortgage and that was it. And then when I got three, I wanted five. When I got five, I wanted 10. When I got 10, I wanted 20. When I got 20, I wanted 50. And I remember making the first million a month and I still wanted more. And, you know, I wouldn't say it's pure greed. I would say it's a balance of growth. And yeah, probably a desire to, you know, once you've got a nice watch, you want a better watch. Once you've got a nice car, you want a better car, you know, blah, blah, blah. You want, you know, so I would say happiness isn't just about money, but because money can make you more happy and probably be more happy than if you're poor. But I would say you want to balance growth, i.e., you know, when you have one child, you might have nine, 10 grand a year school fees. When they go to the senior school, it might be 15. If you have three kids, it's 45 grand a year. So you need growth and more money for that. You know, you may want easier, more comfortable travel. You may want to pay for your children and your grandparents to go on holiday around the world three times a year. You may want to support them in their musical endeavors. Got to buy Bobby a drum kit. Got to buy him a violin. You know, his golf clubs are really expensive. So, you know, more, more, more isn't just about, oh, it's never enough and I'm always chasing the elusive dream. It can be like that. You know, money makes 
pretty good master and a terrible slave. Don't become a slave to money, master it. So hopefully that answers Conrad's question. So the next question then, how do you future-proof your children's views on money? Great question. This is from Helen Watson. It's important to educate your children on the balanced view of life. And I've been extreme in my life. Like 11, 12, 12 years ago, I was all negative and glass half full and pessimistic, pessimistic and hated everyone and hated life and felt unlucky and bitter and jealous and envious. And then when I'd done loads of personal development courses, I was the biggest course junkie ever. I kind of still am, but it works for me. I was like, woo, happy, clappy, positive, look at me, everything's great, woo. And then, you know, behind closed doors, I was still a bit upset and depressed and... You know, it wasn't quite working out for me, but I was pretending that it was. Both of those extremes, I think, are an unbalanced view. So the reality of your children's future view of money is I think you've got to teach them the gifts of money. You know, you've got to teach them how to learn about money early. I got Bobby counting in golf balls and money at the age of two and three before all the kids at school were. We, um, we have little competitions. He has rewards that he can earn money. He's been taught how to save, how to spend. He doesn't really like spending. He likes to save, which is good. I'm already starting to teach him about investment. He's six. He can't quite get his head around that, but I'm starting to teach him that. And also get him involved in what I do in my life. So Janine has just said lead by example. Exactly. So, you know, like I'm going to get him involved in what I'm doing. He's going, to see, he's going to see the books that I've written. He's going to know the seminars I've been to. He's going to have the podcast on in the back of the car. And I've got him really interested in money, which I think is a good thing. But I don't want him to become a slave to money. or I don't want him to think that, you know, have too much of an unbalanced view where it's greed, greed, greed. But at the same time, I need him to have some challenges. I need him to have some times when he hasn't got money and he's got to hustle or he's got to save or, you know, he's got to be resourceful. He's got to be creative. So, you know, like we're often raising our children based on we're passing on the great things we think our parents did for us in our perception. And we're trying to protect them from the things we felt that our parents did for and with us that we didn't maybe like as we perceived it. But we, we can then therefore overly shelter or, or overly expose our kids so, for example, should children be have some exposure to wealth and money and savings and opulence and, you know, the, the gifts that are working hard and helping people and, you know, couldn't bring? I think they should be exposed to that if they can, but they should be exposed to extreme poverty. They should see that some people don't have it lucky like them. And, you know, they, they should understand how fortunate they are to live in the first world. Now, they won't understand that unless you show them. So um, future-proofing their views of money is to give them a balanced view. Um, I believe that most of society are teaching us that money is bad, money is evil, the extreme left, you know, it's like we've got to redistribute the wealth, the capital system, capitalist system is broken, you know, it's people like Russell Brand, you know, blowing that trumpet. But that's a one-sided view, and I'm not saying that it doesn't have merit, but it's a one-sided view. Because another side of um, money is that virtually all charities, virtually all hospitals, all schools, all libraries, if you study them, if you read my book, Money, I did a deep dive research study into it. And most universities and most libraries were set up by Vanderbilt and Carnegie and people like that, you know, those billionaires. Um, and of course, they were capitalists who also um, probably had some monopolies. So this is everything is in balance. All right, great. So Carl has asked, what's a good ratio of spending versus saving? Hmm. So I, if you read the book Money, where I go through the money bucketing system, I've got a couple of variations of how you can apportion your money. You know, so you get money that comes in, you save some, you invest some, you speculate with some, um, you have some insurance, etc. You've got some for tax. You know, so there's a there's um, a couple of ways that you can apportion your wealth depending on how much you have. 
Um, and what you're obviously looking to do, a basic fundamental rule of money, which they're never taught in school. It's so easy and simple. If you follow this sim simple system, I'm going to tell you now, you will get rich. It might take you a short time or a long time, but you will get rich if you follow this really simple fundamental about money. Why are we not taught this at school? Never spend more than you earn. And if you do that every month, that will compound and compound and compound and compound. So um, if you're very, very um, poor or on the breadline and you don't have anything behind you, you want to save more and you want to try and build yourself. First target should be three months of overhead covered. So you've got this little slush fund and then six months of overhead covered, then 12 months of overhead covered. And you want to build that and build that. And then once you've got a good savings pot that could maybe see you for a year if you earn no money, even though you would earn money, then you can start investing. And, you know, you might consider um, taking what you were saving and investing 30% and continue to save 70%. Then as you've got a nice big savings pot, then you can reverse it. So you're investing 70% and saving 30%. And then as you build a nice investment pot, you can take that and 30% of that can be for speculation, like Bitcoin or any of these new things, which are way more risky. And you just build it up like that. Now, um, when you start, because I know the original question from Carl was ratio of spending versus saving. It totally depends on your overhead and your earnings. So it's unrealistic to say, hey, you know, save 70% of your money and spend 30%, which is what I do. But I've built some wealth. I will never spend more than 30% of what I earn. Mark will never spend more than 24% of what he earns, my business partner. But he doesn't have kids. And when he has kids, that will go up. Um, but, you know, I built that over time. Now, initially, when I started and I was poor, I was probably spending 115% of what I was earning, as is most of the population. So your first target should be to get under 100%, i.e. you spend 97% or 95% and you save 3% or 5% and you build up and you build up and you build up and you build up until you're at 80% and 70%. And then what you start is you get this compounding effect of your spending. And then once you've got some sustainable um, savings that can protect you, then you're investing. And once you've got a good investment pot, then you speculate. Once you've got a good speculation pot, then you insure. And then once you've got an insurance pot, then you can look at real growth plans and multiple streams of income. All right, let's go through the next one. Lewis has said, how do you adjust the percentage allocation of your income into different buckets as you get older? Well, as you get older, you'll probably earn more money and you can reduce your overheads. For example, you'd have paid your mortgage down and, you know, maybe your kids have left school so you don't have the overhead of school fees. Maybe you've paid off your cars, etc. So as you get older, naturally, your overhead will go down. And as you get older, your earning power goes up because you've got more knowledge and experience and your savings pot builds up because you're putting it into a savings, maybe into an ISO and you know the tax-free allowance is going up and the amount that you're saving on compounding goes up so what you'll find Lewis and everyone is that naturally over time that allocation will move and um, you know I'm 38 so I'm not old old but I'm certainly getting older and I certainly feel older and what I found is my spending went from 115% of my expenses to down to probably 25% and then up to 30% with kids and I still spend a lot of money a month you know I spend tens of thousands a month when I say a lot, a lot, not, you know, maybe not a lot compared to what I earn or maybe not a lot compared to 100 millionaires or billionaires, but relatively. So you can still have a very good, you know, financially free, opulent lifestyle, spending decent money, but spending a small percentage. So, yeah, you'll find that that naturally happens over time, Lewis. Um, and what you're just looking to do, I think, is just to reduce percent by percent. You know, if you, if you think about it, if you reduce just two percent a year, your savings versus spending. So you went from 98 to 96 to 94 to 92 to 90 to 88 to 86. With compounding in probably 20 years, you'd have a decent amount of saved, saved money, invested money. 
Yeah, and, and remember, though, the 15-year rule, and that's a really important rule, is every 15 years, inflation virtually halves the value of your money. So if you need five grand today, you need 10 grand in 15 years for it to be the same amount of money. And a lot of people don't understand that. And you know when people are saying, oh, well, money, it's always going up, it's always going up, it's never enough. You're always chasing the elusive. Well, whilst I get that, inflation kind of causes that. So you have to keep upping it just to keep up with, you know, the, 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 sort of the reduction of the value of your pound or your dollar. David George has asked, if money's value is only a perceived thing, can you ever be sure of what equity is truly worth in the long term? So yes, money is both perceived and real because money in and of itself, like, you know, some notes, it is just paper for sure. Uh, it's a promise, isn't it? It's an exchange of value, a unit, a unit of account, a universal measure of worth and value. So in that regard, it's very ethereal. But of course, as soon as you, for example, take uh, Bobby's favourite money at the moment are these brown plastic £10 notes. He's been winning off them off me in the golf course. If you take that piece, that polymer, and you exchange it for that, and you get that, and you read that, and you go and follow the formula for wealth, wealth equals value plus fair exchange times leverage, uh, you turn the ethereal, the promise, the potential into reality and physical. So back to the question, David, about equity is that, yeah, equity isn't real until it's cash in the bank, but it's latent cash in the bank. It's stored cash in the bank. It's future cash in the bank. Of course, equity means you've leveraged some kind of debt or you have some kind of asset that is likely or you believe is going to go up in value. And as it goes up in value, your equity increases and the promise of you getting capital or income goes up and as there is disruption or a market crash or an, you know some kind of recession the equity reduces and the promise of you getting more money reduces now the reason why i think it's an interesting question is because a lot of people have equity but actually don't have anything real and you can have a lot of money on paper you can have paper assets that really do nothing for you because you're either not leveraging them they're just there or you haven't cashed them in and when it times comes time to cash them in it's eroded then there's other paper, you know, physical paper equity. Because if you think about it, the information in a book is equity and potentiality of all the information and the value that you could create in the, in the marketplace. You could solve problems, you could innovate, you could disrupt, you could create new products and services that could bring you thousands, maybe even millions. Okay, William Spilsbury has asked, where do you think the critical mass is? Where you own personal funds, where your own personal funds become enough to fund a living to a reasonable standard and be able to provide enough investment potential not to worry. I think the critical mass is probably the step one is covering your overhead. You know, so your school fees, your mortgage, your car loans and your credit cards and your water and your electricity and your Sky TV and all of that sort of stuff. That's the initial sort of like, all right, now my income meets my overhead and I'm no longer getting in more and more and more and more debt. Uh, and then the next critical mass is probably twice that. Because once you're twice that, then you've got a buffer. You've got a bit of freedom. You can do more of the things that you love to do. So maybe initial target, meet your overhead with income from assets. Second target, double it. Triple it and you're probably quite opulent. You can probably do a lot more. But then every 15 years, inflation will halve it. Because roughly every 15 years, the value of this £10 note becomes... This £5 note, roughly speaking, depending on inflation rates, etc. So if you want 10 grand a month now, that needs to be 20 grand a month in 15 years. And the question that uh, was asked before was, when is it ever enough? Well, in reality, it's, it's never quite always enough. 
or ever enough because in 15 years it halves and you need to double it. Also, you want to plan what you do with the money. Like my overhead used to be 120% of my income, you know, like most of the planet are living way beyond their actual expenses. You know, so they're like, they're, they're, you know, they were living beyond their means. They're building up more debt. So step one for most people in, who are having bad problems financially is get it so that I'm spending 99% or less of what I earn. Because even 1% saved every month compounds over time, very slowly at first, of course. But 1% for a few months then becomes 2%, then you reduce your overhead by 1%, then it becomes 3%, and then next year it's 4% and 5%, and then you, you, know, you just sort of tweak your income up a bit, you tweak your expenses down a bit, you go through your direct debits, you pay off some of your bills, you get rid of a, an overhead that you had for three or five years, and then, it, and then you're at 90%, 80%, 70%. And then what you do is you take this money that you've got spare and step one is to save and build a pot where you're, um, you know, you've got three months of savings and you've got a year then you've got two years and then you invest and then you speculate and then you insure and then you build up this big critical mass. All right. So very simple question and thinking outside of the box, observing the masses and doing the opposite. But where does the word money originate from? Well, you'll have to read the history section in this book to find out uh, where the word money originates from. But um, money in and of itself is quite a um, wider word. Um, if you think of things like currency, the word is Latin for flow, circulate to flow. And most of the words around money have um, historical connotations like capital is another word for money. And that is uh, the head of a cow. Capital is, um, you know, so like capitate. Um, because money used to be measured in, um, you know, in um, your livestock years and years and years and years and years and years and years ago. Um, you know, like, so um, go through the history section. There's a load more definitions in there on money and what it means. Good question there. Uh, right. So Sharon, I'm trying to reach my daughters in terms of understanding more effective financial management. I'm going to give each of them one of the books I bought. So she's bought two books of money. If they have any questions I can answer in relation to the book. Are there reputable places, people, organisations signposted to in the book they can go to for appropriate guidance? OK, well, Sharon, why don't you invite them into the disruptive entrepreneurs community or the progressive property community? And why don't you get them to go in and make a comment and tag me in? I'm very active in the groups. So, yeah, why don't you challenge me with that? I'd love to help. You know, my new foundation has been set up to help underprivileged people and young people, especially um, sort of learn about money and manage money better and create wealth. Not just for those, for everyone, but those. Um, so, yeah, give me a try, Sharon. I'll see if I can help. OK, Curvin Gwist. Forgive me if my pronunciation is terrible. The poor accuse the rich and wealthy of taking, stealing from them. To what extent is that true? Um, well, I, I don't think that the mass perceived prevailing wind of information is necessarily accurate. Um, if someone steals, someone steals. But if someone chooses to exchange money for a service, that's not theft. That's an exchange. And why would they, um, you know, you could say, oh, but they're addicted. There's, you know, gambling. There's various different addictions. You know, call it what you want. We're all addicted to something. But if there, as long as there's a legal exchange, i.e. not illegal, then I have chosen to give this £5 to you, whether that serves me or not. That's my education, my information, my choice. So I don't think that the rich steal from the poor. I think that the wealthy produce for the poor to consume. I think that the wealthy value money more than the poor who value other things and they spend their money for it. Um, now, that's not to say that there aren't some rich people who have maybe gone a bit on the side of greedy. 
but there are also a lot of poor people who are on the side of selfless and who are not not selfish enough to understand managing their own money and sorting out their own affairs. I mean, they say, don't they, that charity starts at home. But you see, I like I hear a lot of people talking about the left versus the right and the system and capitalism, you know, being geared up to the one percent. And we've got to change the system. Quite frankly, I think most of that is nonsense. I think that the main problem is education. You know, were you taught at school the difference between asset and a liability? Were you taught how money bucketing? Were you taught what interest rates are? Were you taught what inflation is? Were you taught how to build savings and investments? Were you taught fundamentals of investing, like pay yourself first and never spend more than you earn? No, you were not taught all that stuff at school. And you can take um, someone who's quite poor and it might not be their fault because they're in the third world or it might not be their fault because they haven't been taught by their kids how to, sorry, by their parents how to manage money. And they just handed down this generational problem. You teach these people how to manage money better and they'll make more money, but you can't get more money until you learn to manage what you've already got. So fundamentally, it's a problem of of education within systems, awareness. And this is why I try my best not to judge. And of course, we all accidentally do that from time to time. But the reality is there's a lot of poor people. It's not their fault because their parents didn't teach them, right? You know, their parents handed over all their guilt and fear and shame around money onto them. Our school system didn't teach us about all the fundamentals of managing money to raise healthy, wealthy kids and to embrace wealth. You know, so then what we do is that we think the system is corrupt and we blame the richest people. But the richest people have learned about money, about managing, about investing, about saving, about speculating, about insuring, about risk, you know, about reinvesting, about innovating, about creating solutions, about solving meaningful problems. That's what they've done. And then when they go into over-greedy mode, like Madoff, for example, or Enron, society finds them out and overthrows them. But when you go into over-selfless mode, uh, giving it all away, gambling it all away, guilting it all away, then you end up going, you know, insolvent. You, you go personally bankrupt. Uh, and then all the clients that you took money from, which you didn't charge enough for um, because you had the guilt, they lose their money or their service. And it's, it's just a similar problem, but at the other extreme. So for me, it's about education. Then, should the wealthy be obliged at all outside of tax? Well, here's the thing. People say, oh, there should be a redistribution of wealth. There is. It's called tax. And, you know, people think, oh, well, Amazon, they're paying no tax. Yes, they are. They're paying business rates. You know, they might reduce their corporation tax, but they're paying national insurance employers, national insurance employees. They're paying, paying VAT in the billions and billions and billions, or the American version of VAT. They'll be paying VAT in the UK, you know, whatever. So they're generating millions, billions and billions worth of taxation. OK, they're trying to reduce their corporation tax or their personal tax, which most business owners are trying to do. And as long as you do it legitimately and follow the rules and you can reduce your tax from 40 odd percent to a lot less if you follow the rules that are on the HMRC website. And, you know, and, and the irony is, there's all these people bitching and moaning about Starbucks and Amazon not paying any tax and going on and buying all their books. Go and buy this book. <laughs> money. So, you know, there's a lot of irony there. Also, the wealthy are the ones that are given to charity. The wealthy are the ones that set up the foundation. How many skint people have foundations? How many skint people are giving away millions and billions to charity? But who are the people that are giving away billions? Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, you know, the biggest capitalists in the world. They're the ones that are giving away all this money, in, you know, in the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So they are but the problem is, and it's a good question, Kevin, and so I'm ranting, I'm not ranting at you, I'm ranting, generally speaking. The problem is a lot of the stuff out there in the media uh, and on social media and from your friends is from poor people. You know, there's all these poor, first world poor, first world poor, just about making ends meet. People saying money doesn't make you happy, but they've never been rich. 
and I've been poor and I've been rich and money makes me more happy. Now, of course, money doesn't solve all my problems. Sometimes it creates bigger ones. But all things equal, everything else equal, everything. And I have no money, I have lots of money, but everything else is equal because that's the only way you can do an accurate split test. What would I prefer? What would you prefer? And what makes me more happy? Being wealthy. Being wealthy means you can, you know, wear nice clothes, do nice things, and you can have good self-worth. You can give away to charities. You can give big tips. You can help people. You can live in a nice neighborhood. You can be safe. You can put your kids in good schools and surround them with good people. You can have luxuries and conveniences that make you feel good. Now, as long as you're doing that ethically and you're not screwing people over and you're balancing that with helping other people and donating to other people. You know, I often go around giving 20 pound tips or 20 pound gifts or whatever. Someone found my keys because I lost my keys. There was about 450,000 pounds worth of cars on the on the keys that I lost and I just gave him 20 quid and it was shocked. Like, oh, you know, but like I really lost 450 grand's worth of cars. So that's the least that I can do. Now, I couldn't do that when I was skinned. You can't pay, you know, like whenever I go out for dinner, whenever, all the time, I always try and pay. Always try and pay. I don't want anything back. And I'm not saying, oh, I'll get this one and you get the next one. I'm always trying to pay. Now, when I was skinned, I was always hoping that someone would pay for me. All right. So Conrad has asked, oh, and Conrad, you've just put a post here. What's the quickest way and the lowest risk you know how to double your money? Wow. Good question. Well, you know what? There is no absolute answer. And I know you're asking me. Um, I would say follow my wealth formula of value plus fair exchange times leverage And therefore, what can you do? What do you know? What have you experienced in your life? What do you know better than anyone else? What have you got good skills in? What are you great at? Find something that you're really good at. Um, And that's the value part. And then you've got to communicate that to other people in your marketplace. Here's what I can do for you. And I can back this up with proof. Then you create the fair exchange, which is packaging into a product or service where you charge enough. So you make sustainable profit of at least 20% sustainable. And they also perceive it a bargain. So, you know, I perceive that this um, book, Money, at 10 quid is worth it to you. And, um, it, you know, a lot of people have said it's worth a lot more. And one star reviewers will say it was not worth it. So the you know, market will tell me what it's worth. But if I am, um, the thing with this is it's information. So I can afford to do high volume and low cost because I'm packaging information. And for me, a big part of my business and my brand and what I do, as you know, is sharing information and packaging that in different formats, podcast, live feed, books, audio books, courses, seminars, masterminds, retreats, you know, you name it. Um, And as long as my information is good and it helps you and you equal the value at what I'm charging or better. So if I'm charging less than the value you perceive, you perceive it as a bargain. And conversely, if I go into greed mode or I just get complacent and I'm charging more than it's worth, you perceive that I've ripped you off. You know, the the world, the market, your customers, you know, your critics, your trolls, your haters, and also your fans and your followers, they'll give you constant feedback all the time. I loved it, I loved it, I loved it. Or this is not very good. This is not as good as your last one. Or be careful. You know, the market will always give you the feedback if you're in that fair exchange. Uh, And that fair exchange is sustainable profit margin, but people still perceiving that you give good value. Um, And then leverage is how many people can I get out to? How many customers, followers, fans can I reach through social media, through, I don't know, general marketing, through direct marketing, through the text messages, emails, ads, uh, word of mouth, referrals, ambassador programs, you know, etc. So I know that's a generic answer, Conrad, but I just, you know, like I could just say, I'll do service accommodation or I'll do Amazon e-commerce or uh, create a set of, um, you know, create some information and package it and sell it as an online membership site. They're all worthy either models or media. But the reality is, what are you great at? What can you help other people? And what's there a need for? 
So if you think about, you know, those Wengler diagrams where there's got one circle, another circle and another circle, and they all overlap with the sweet spot in the middle. What are you great at? What do you love? What's their market for? And in that middle there is the sweet spot. If you're great at it, but you don't love it, you won't sustain it. You'll resent your clients. You'll, you know, you'll give it up one day. If you're great at it and you love it, but there's no market, it's a hobby. And if you like it and there's a market, but you're not very good at it, then you don't have credibility yet. So you fight, you merge and match those three. Uh, and Conrad, knowing you and knowing what you do in terms of the um, e-commerce great business you've set up, it could be packaging and selling that. It could be growing that. It could be creating information and, you know, online courses and physical courses around that. Who knows? Um, but it's definitely following my wealth formula of value. E va wealth equals value plus fair exchange times leverage. All right. Uh, you have a very successful property business. This is from Sakina Kauza Qureshi. Again, forgive me if my pronunciation is terrible. I am from Peterborough after all. You have a very successful property business, which you have built from scratch. You have had to learn, make mistakes and learn some more. I have a young child who I'd like to educate in money from a young age. I'd like to know if you were to give some golden advice to your younger self, your child, what would it be? Wow, man, these questions, I'm just going through these in order, so I'm not filtering them out. All right, so it depends how old they are. If they are three or 12 or 15, it makes a big difference. But I would definitely take an active interest in money and economics and business and finance, all the stuff that I thought was boring at school when I was a creative arty type. So I always wanted to do art and architecture and all the arty farty things, which of course that was great. That's what I was interested in. But I should have taken more an interest in money and finance and business. And I really believe the key to building wealth is learning more and more and more about money. And of course, that's not just saying, hey, read my book, Money. You should read every book on money. You should do every seminar you can on money, not just mine, but anyone else who might be able to teach you some good stuff about wealth, about leverage, about investing, about saving, about you know managing risk, about building assets, about building multiple streams of income, about your money mindset, you know, about the new innovations in currency and technology like Bitcoin. Now, the reality is my money book has all of those in because my main problem when I was teaching myself money and I started at 25 stroke 26 teaching myself about money. So I was in the wilderness for, well, I always wanted to make more money and I wanted to be an entrepreneur when I was a young kid. So really, you could say from the age of sort of seven or eight when I was earning pocket money all the way through to 25, I wanted to make more money and be a, an entrepreneur and create and you know have autonomy and freedom. But I never really embraced it. And I struggled with it and I didn't, you know, I was a bit of a, a slave to it. And, you know, being, being a slave to money is a really terrible thing. Being a master of it is a great thing. Um, and, you know, then I started to learn about it. And I was reading mindset books, strategy books, tactical books, um, you know, like dry economics books. Then you're reading the Get Richie Quickie books and then you're reading all the different vehicles of making money, whether it's Bitcoin or trading or property or whatever. And I was just reading all these books and it was great. I was getting knowledge and knowledge and knowledge and knowledge and knowledge and knowledge. But man, that was a shared load of books. I mean, I, I listened to the equivalent of about 500 books a year now. And it was a long, drawn out process. And some of the key things were in them all, which was a good tick. But I had to filter through a lot of stuff that wasn't relevant. And so I thought, well, there needs to be a book out there that covers it all. Everything, the mindset, the skill set, the strategies, the tactics, the journey, the story, the history, because I've got more and more interested in the history of, of money. And the more you know about the history and how it works, the more I think you know about how it's going to change in the future, because what's happening with Bitcoin and cryptocurrency is not new at all. It's been happening for thousands of years as money is like water. It's liquid. It's changing form all the time. It looks slow to us because, you know, generation by generation, it doesn't change too much. But if you go back through 2000 years, 
It's, it's gone through animals. It's gone through grains. It's gone through sardines. It's gone through cigarettes. It's gone through stones that are in the bottom of the sea. It's gone through salt. Um, salary, the word salary derives from salt. Going back to the other question about money and the meaning of it. So money is liquid. It's changing all the time. In 100 years, it's going to be something completely different. Paper? Eh? Do you remember when they used to exchange paper for money? I mean, what, Philistines? You know, they're, they're, they're stuck in the old ages. So it just changes. But the, with, with all of these changes come opportunity because you embrace the new currencies, the new liquid forms of money, and you become a controller of it or a purveyor of it. Then you win big, just like the people who got involved in money lending when money lending came to, um, you know, fruition. And, you know, the people who set up the banks. A more history of the words of money mortgage and debenture are both related to the word death because you have these for so long, you probably have them until you die. And so anyway, so I wanted to put it all in one place. Uh, and that is money. So yeah, back to Sakina's question, I would get my children involved in education of money early, I'd embrace teaching them that learning about money is as important as learning about your health, about food, you know, ab about love, all these kind of things, you know, the things that your values that you raise in your kids, money should be part of that because it's ubiquitous. It's the biggest thing in our system. You know, people are, people are all up for health and meditation and investing and all this other stuff. But money is way more ubiquitous than that. Like if you've, if you've got good money, you can afford a good personal trainer. You can afford really expensive food because, you know, by the way, a lot of the really healthy food that you buy costs a lot more money. So, so money is like probably the most important thing we need to learn, to manage, to understand, to embrace more than 50% of marriages, i.e. the majority of all marriages which end in divorce are through to money problems, money difficulties. And more than 50% of husbands or wives, spouses, do not share with each other how much they earn. So th this is stuff that's ruining our relationships. This is stuff that we're lying to our loved ones about. Yet it's the thing that's the most important. And I guess this is my mission in writing money and giving you a lot of money content and gearing a lot of my brand and my live feeds and podcasts and rants around money is, you know, there's, there's people out there way on the left, you know, the system is ruined. We need a more sort of, I don't know, commun they don't say communist, do they? But what they really mean is that we need a sharing society rather than a meritocracy, really. That's communism. Uh, but look what happens with communism. You just end up getting a dictator. Uh, and if we don't reward merit and if we don't reward people um, creating and innovating, then we're not going to get growth and progress. And that is against um, the natural inclination of human beings to survive and to thrive and evolve. So money is linked to that. And, you know, you need greed, but you also need selflessness. You need greed to a certain degree, selfishness to survive. But you also need selflessness to interact in a community because without the community can't survive. But without looking after yourself and, you know, like, oh, I'm going to run away because I'm going to get killed. But I'll let him get killed first. You can't survive either. And, um, you know, money is intrinsically linked in that. So money isn't anything other than a reflection of humanity. This is made by machines and we make the machines that make this money. So money isn't good or bad. It's a reflection of humanity. All right. So there we go. Um, I want to get my children to go into money seminars. I want them to have a, a good relationship with money. I want them to see the upsides as well as the downsides. I want them to have a balanced view. I want them to learn how to save, to invest, to insure to speculate. I want them to balance risk. I want them to experience making some money and losing some money and winning some money through competitions or investment that pays a return. And then sometimes when they make a mistake, they've got to learn that they don't get the money, they lose the money. I want them to learn everything about money because everything about money you'll experience in the real world. I don't want to shelter them from, e from either extreme. I want them to have some hardships, some growth, some challenges, but I want them to have some, some wins and some rewards. 
So I want them to learn everything. So maybe I need to get this on the audio in the car. Okay, so Lucy Van Hilton has asked me, what do you think is the best investment strategy today and the best way to adjust as the world changes? For example, as blockchain and cryptocurrencies get stronger and plateau in five years and are replaced by the next big investment opportunity, how do you keep track of that and make the most of it? Okay, so um, I wrote a section, a chapter in the, in the new book Money about the history of money and it was a really deep research subject coined by Kabir Sagal was great. There was other great history money books and that I read and I interviewed um, people who'd uh, written the books. And um, what I realized in researching the history of money for, th for the thousands of years is that money's always changing form. Now, when we initially look at what's happening, for example, with Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, we're like, whoa, well, you know, the world's changing really fast. And, um, but actually, um, this has been happening all the time. So um, I don't know if Bitcoin will take off as a, uh, a currency or all the other, you know, um, Ethereum and the other cryptocurrencies. They're certainly looking like they could either be the next big currency or the next big Na Nasdaq, um, you know, volatile crash. So uh, I think the jury's out. I, my advice on blockchain and cryptocurrency, and when I say advice, it's not financial advice. Got a disclaimer. Um, but generally, what I would say is learn it first. Learn, learn, learn. Because, you know, you can mine your own Bitcoin, you can go through a broker, or you can even just invest in a fund that invests in Bitcoin. That's three different ways of getting your money into Bitcoin. Um, you know, if you, if you don't learn about it, then it's a gamble. And if you accept that it's a gamble and you're putting money in that you can afford to lose and you've almost written off, well, then that's OK, because, you know, you're testing a new investment platform. Um, but, you know, just because it's high price at the moment, it's been going up and up, it's been going up like that, volatility, but it's been going up and up and up, um, that, you know, doesn't mean that now is the right time to get in. In fact, now could be a bad time to get in because there could be some big drop. Um, I think that the, um, the, the various cryptocurrencies, you know, they certainly look volatile and you don't necessarily know if any of them are going to be secure enough, are going to take off enough, are going to be scalable, are going to be ubiquitous. But the technology behind it, blockchain, does look interesting because it looks like it has many other functions. But something that intrigues me about Bitcoin and the cryptocurrencies is the decentralization I think we have of money right now. Um, because, you know, individually, um, a thousand years ago, you know, we had little tribes, didn't we? And so money was pretty decentralized. There wasn't one World Bank and Central Bank. There was a tribe of 70 or 100 or 200 people. And we exchanged animals and grains and, you know, items between us. And it was very decentralized, loads of small economies. And then you had the big banks. And of course, they controlled them to a certain degree, monopolized a lot of the money or the money, the, you know, the fiscal policy. Uh, but now it's changing again because individuals can set up their own currencies. I mean, the artist I studied in this book, she um, created a cryptocurrency called Bitcoin, which was quite a good take. Uh, and, and you could buy currency in um, her um, art in, you know, in, in her cryptocurrency. And there's just recently been a house that's gone on the market for something like 15 million. You can only pay in Bitcoin. So we've got like this decentralization in many ways. Um, of money. And what that great gives is great opportunity for the entrepreneur to set up their own currency. I mean, look at the Bank of Dave. Dave, hey, well, my name's Dave. And here we go, there's a bank. Uh, so, you know, I, I think that what we're finding is that the big corporations are slightly breaking up and have less control. And so what that means is startups and entrepreneurs and individuals who are maybe disruptive and looking to sort of 
um, create better value and be more lean and more um, dynamic, you know, you can get ahead. So I know it's a long way of answering Lucy's question, but which was quite open. So basically, the best investment strategy of today isn't necessarily a vehicle. It's the one you know the most about. So, you know, I personally with Mark know the most about property. I'm, I've got a passion for watches. And so I've done well on it all by one of my watches. But I've got a real passion for it. I learn it. I read it. I study it. I track the prices. I'm interested in, you know, measuring the prices. I have a passion to wear them. Um, so it doesn't really seem like work for me to research them. I'm not a great researcher, but I don't really see it as research learning about watches. Um, whereas many of you are probably into Bitcoin already. I've got um, a good friend and a JV partner who's who's in, you know, seven figures, big seven figures. I mean, I don't know exactly what, but I know he's made a lot out of um, Bitcoin. But he was telling me years and years and years to go to get into Bitcoin. Um, and I probably should have done. But, you know, I, I, I guess the self-awareness I had um, took me years to get some self-awareness. Um, is that, you know, I know my limitations, know what you know, and know what you don't. Uh, and I know that I don't know enough about Bitcoin. You know, many of you might be great at information marketing or great at e-commerce or, you know, whatever. So really, there's not a best investment strategy. The best investment strategy is to build knowledge on a chosen investing strategy and focus and get really good at it and then diversify into your 70, 20, 10. Um, yeah, and then the next big opportunity, investment opportunity, opportunity in 10 years time, I don't know. You know, I don't have a crystal ball. I never pretend to. I'm no guru. I'm a student. So who knows? So money is very liquid. It's like water. It moves all the time. Now, what's happening with the speed of light through fiber optics and then even um, quantum entanglement, which might even be faster than the speed of light? What we're seeing is that everything is speeding up. Social media is speeding up. Access, interconnectivity across the world is speeding up. You know, we're bang, you're, you know, a second and this is live feeding to and podcasting to the other side of the world. So money is speeding up too. And money loves speed. Money loves speed. Money hates friction. It its function is to flow. That's how it lives. That's how it's alive, exchanging um, value and energy between individuals and um, measuring, you know, unit of count and a, a unit of account and a measure of worth. Um, so in 10 years, I predict it's going to get faster and faster and faster and faster and faster because, you know, we see we see that the Internet is very mature, but it's not. It's what was in the 80s. So there's still so much leverage of the Internet, of social media, of these huge network online, you know, like. Uber has no cars and Airbnb has no hotels and, you know, um, all these huge networked companies with billions of users, but they don't own all this physical stock like a lot of the old companies. You Netflix, you know, they don't own any. You remember Blockbuster had to actually physically have all the, the, the tapes. Do you remember tapes? I used to get all Arnold Schwarzenegger's um, movies on tape when I was, was not 18. My mum used to tape me when I was 14. I loved Arnie films. Um, all right. So next question is from Stacey Watling. How do you catch, calculate your time, knowledge, worth and how much to charge your clients when you feel they are not overly rich but need to support but need the support and your service? Well, OK, so how do you calculate your time, knowledge and worth? You work out your income generating value, which is in, actually in Life Leverage. It's, not, it's also in this book, um, but it was I originally shared it with you in Life Leverage, where it is the number of hours. Sorry, the number you earn, the, the amount of money you earn divided by the number of hours. If you earn three thousand pounds and you work 30 hours, it's 100 pounds per hour of exchange time for work. So you work out overtime and all the hours you work and then all the money you have from all sources, passive and active. And you have a figure, it might be £10 an hour, £50 an hour, £100 an hour, £10,000 an hour. And that is your value of time. Now, why is that a useful metric for you to have? Because 
you now know um, what you should be doing from an income generating time or an IGT perspective. And if it can cost you less to outsource it, you should be outsourcing it. Otherwise, you'll drop your hourly rate. If it could make you more, you can or should do it yourself because it could increase your hourly rate. So it, it will happen in a sort of a binary fashion that you'll choose. OK, well, because I'm worth £20 an hour and that could cost me £10 an hour to an outsourcer, then I should, um, if, if, if I actually do that £10 an hour task when I'm worth £20 an hour, then um, I'm lo essentially losing £10 in my overall time and value exchange. So it helps you outsource. It helps you um, get your head around paying for help, for consultants, for staff, for systems, for software, which in your mind you perceive have a cost, but actually they have a cost for you not to invest in them because it costs your time more and your time is worth more. Now, of course, the given there is you have to reinvest that time that you free into income generating tasks and key result areas. So that's how you calculate your time, knowledge and worth. Um, and how do you know how much to charge your clients? Well, um, you, some, um, Stacey has said here, she feels they're not overly rich, but one, you don't know how rich they are. Never make that assumption. Have they shown you the bank accounts? Probably not. So you're making an assumption. Number two, you're probably judging them and never, you know, never judge anybody because you'll be surprised all the time. Number three is, you know, people will invest money on what's important to them. So if making money and learning and investing and growing and increasing, in, increasing your mindset is important to you, you will invest £10 in this book money. It's £10, it's not a lot of money. But if, you know, if, if someone has a bad relationship with money or they're not, they're not bothered about increasing their knowledge and education, net worth, then they'll spend £10 of a fast food joint or whatever. So, you, you know, you people who you might perceive might not have a lot of money, they will spend their money on their highest values. So, you know, I know a lot of people, um, ex-girlfriends, for example, who didn't have necessarily have a lot of money, but they're spending hundreds of, hundreds of pounds a month on the cosmetics and the makeup and everything else, you know, and it's like, by the way, I never said anything about that. <laughs> so, but you know, there's, you know, I used to spend thousands of pounds a year on designer clothes, even though I didn't have the money and probably spent 120% of what I, what I earned because I was, you know, trying to make myself feel better about myself. So anything that you value is important to you, your kids, you'll spend tens of thousands of pounds on your kids, money you don't necessarily have, because obviously you see them as most important. So your clients will invest in you if they think your service is important and of value to them. Never judge how much they are. But if you've been doing this years and clearly you're attracting people who really can't pay and they're, they're always going into bad debt on you and whatever, you probably need to look at a different niche of client and you need to increase the value of your service a bit. So you just gently detract the kind of clients who want the very low value, easy jet kind of service and you, and you gently attract the people who want the upper class service. So you create more value. By the way, sometimes the best thing you can do is actually up your price because it attracts a higher uh, clientele, if you like. So, um, yeah, I hope that helps, um, Stacey. So, Mark, would you invest your child's future inheritance perhaps on a medium risk strategy or place safe and let it grow over time on a more safe investment? OK, so what I'd probably do is start by investing it securely and safely, maybe in an ISA. I've opened ISAs for both of my kids. I've got my own ISAs. I always max the ISAs every year. I've been doing for as long as I've been learning how to manage money properly. You know, and that builds up nicely. You've got some ISA millionaires now who started the very, you know, started investing the maximum amount in the first ISAs. Um, so ISIS for me, ISIS for the kids, get a little, get a, um, a certain, a certain safe pot together. And then what I'll probably do is um, I'll um, end up uh, supporting them by helping them earn and save money. So they've got their own money, not just my money, but their own money. Um, so this is a new card that's come out. It's um, for six year olds and over. Um, I'll, I'll have to remember the name of it and share it with you. But it's like a bank card for a six year old and they can kind of use it. And I've just, we've just set one up. I got recommended it um, on an interview I did, actually. Uh, and then I'm also going to look at where they are when they're 
17, 18. You know, if Bobby's world number one golfer, he won't need me. It might be the other way around. Um, but, you know, like for example, I remember um, a very wealthy friend of Mark's dad's. Um, he said, look, um, when your son was 18, he said, you're moving out. I'm lending you this deposit for this house. Um, it was a, a four bedroom, three story townhouse, I think, maybe five bedrooms even, got five bedrooms out of it. And he said, I'm lending you the deposit, um, but you've got to pay me back. And um, you can do with it what you want, but you, um, I recommend that you rent out all the rooms uh, and you get to keep anything over and above the mortgage. So it's essentially lent him the money to get a house. And so this chap who was what, in his early 20s, uh, no, no, he was 18, it was uh, when he was 18, he had like five people living in his house, taking rent off them. Um, and making a decent amount of money at that age, that was unheard of. And But it was more than just the money. It was teaching them how to manage tenants, how to manage money with your friends. And, you know, he probably had some bad experiences with renting to his friends who didn't pay. And, you know, the, the, you've got, I think you've got to give your kids a balance view of life. People are going to screw you over and you're going to make mistakes and you're going to overpromise. And, you know, then you'll, you know, and then you, things are going to go wrong and things are going to go over time and over budget and all these things are going to happen if you, they do. So getting them involved in that and learning the holistic balance to give them that wisdom. I think is very useful for them. Um, all right, Ben Jacob Smith. I'm keen to understand the definition and difference between new money and old money and how the mindsets for the possessors of each differs. What are their goals, patterns and beliefs? Well, you know, new money and old money is just really a very generic phrase. So old money as in inherited money or, you know, third generation wealth or I don't know, maybe monarchy wealth or whatever. You know, look at the Duke of Westminster kind of wealth, the family wealth the legacy wealth. And then the new money might be like the startup entrepreneurs who've made billions like Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg and, um, you know, um, Jack Ma and all these e-commerce billionaires in China. Um, you know, new, new money sometimes doesn't have the experience and wisdom of generations, so it can make it quickly, but it can lose it quickly. Old money is a little bit more governed by family and policy and history and heritage. Um, I'm definitely more new money because it's only been 10 years, 11 years since I've been making really decent money and I wasn't handed anything from my parents. Um, so, you know, but it's just a phrase, really. I think you can learn from everyone. I like to learn people who, you know, sometimes people say, oh, well, if it's third or fourth generation wealth or whatever, the well, you know, like that doesn't really matter. It doesn't really count. They inherited it. But it does count because you can learn from everyone. And imagine if you inherited money from your parents and then from their parents. In some way, yeah, you might be entitled and in some way you might not value it quite as much because you didn't earn it. But in the other ways, you might think this is my family legacy. This is generations of my family. I better not waste this money. And you might end up hoarding it. You might end up spraying it all over the town. But managing someone else's money has its different challenges to managing money you've made yourself. Comes with different responsibilities. So, you know, we shouldn't just assume if money is not self-made, it's not real money. It is real money because you've still got a responsibility with it and you can still learn. And you probably learn more about trusts and more about inheritance tax and all that if you've, you know, received second or third generation money, which you haven't learned yet if you're making new money, your own money. Um, so I, I just like to learn from everyone. So I've studied a lot about new money and I've studied a lot about old money. You know, we, when researching, um, my book, um, you know, I wanted to know from both sides, I wanted a, a, an equal balance. And, um, and you know, when I, when Bobby gets older, I'll hopefully encourage him and teach him and guide him to be able to make his own money. But, you know, some of mine might go his way, but you know, it might be in trust or it might be investment only, or it might be, it might only be reward based. Um, you know, it's famously um, Bill Gates and uh, what, so Warren Buffett, I think, is not really given leaving a, a large amount of his money to his kids. A lot of it's going to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And that's his choice because he maybe sees that 
you know, might not be able to handle the responsibility because money will only exaggerate your traits. So people say, oh, money, it changes people, but it just exaggerates your traits. So whatever you spend and invest and waste right now, if you've got more money, you'd spend, invest and waste in the same way. If you're an addict, then the money's going to fuel the addiction. Um, so, you know, sometimes it can be a curse, not a gift to give people a load of money. Look at all these lottery winners who end up with nothing two or three years later because you can give someone all the money in the world. But it's education that's the problem. In the schools, the capitalist system, you know, everything. It's not just about a system that's designed for the rich 1% and the poor 99%. It's not designed that way. It wasn't designed, it's evolved. Um, But, you know, some people are saying that that's the way it works. But the reality is the problem isn't redistribution of wealth, because if you redistribute it, it just goes back to the top again, because the top know how to create it, you know, how to control it, how to create value, how to exchange it, how to produce for the consumers to consume. So the problem to make, you know, the, the, the lower percentiles more wealthy It's not taking it from the rich, but teaching the poor what the rich know, because, you know, you can accuse the rich of being whatever you want to accuse them of. But most now there's more than 50 percent new money than old money. So now more than half the people who are millionaires and very wealthy in the world are self-made as opposed to inherited. Whereas 20, 30 years ago, it was a much bigger percentage of old inherited money. So the proof is you can start with nothing and you can learn it. And it's the education and the knowledge. And I always go back to that knowledge and education. Um, you know, that will make you rich, which is why I spent, oh man, 10, 11 years in the sort of action, the study and the research and the making mistakes and having some successes in writing this book, Money. Dave Lister has asked me, from when you were in debt, what was the first biggest step you did to change the situation and head towards a better financial situation? Okay, so I started reading books. Started reading things like Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Richest Man in Babylon and Think and Grow Rich. Um, But I didn't just all of a sudden wake up and go, oh, I'm going to start reading books on money. I better go on down to Waterstones and buy them. Um, It's kind of weird how it all happened because um, I'd had a significant event in my life. My dad became really ill and it was very stressful and I felt a lot of guilt and shame. Um, and so I, after that, I was in a, quite a lot of debt and I started scratching around looking for stuff. I was quite desperate, actually. Um, but the good thing about my desperation was I was out there looking for stuff. So, um, you know, I was speaking to my gallery owner. I was speaking to friends I knew. I was um, My gallery owner said, hey, you should go to this property event. I went to this property event. I met this kind of weird, eccentric, techie, geeky, analytical, bit unfriendly kind of guy who's still my business partner today, 11 years on. And we made tens of millions of pounds together. Um And uh, while this was all going on, I think a guy who rented one of my rooms in my house, the only room that I wasn't sleeping in, um, because I don't want to make it sound like it was a mansion back then. There was two rooms and I was sleeping in one. So I weren't renting that one. And he's renting the other one. And he was having a clear out. And he said, hey, Rob, I've got these CDs for you. And I thought they were music CDs because I used to um, paint at night and used to listen to music. So I'll stick them on. They were called Get the Edge. I thought it was a band. And actually Get the Edge was by Tony Robbins, this big personal development guy who's got hands like that big. And uh, and I started listening to that. And I was like, at first, I was like, who's this crazy American dude? I don't like this guy. He's too much. Get out of my face. I was so English, so negative, so grumpy. Um, and then all of a sudden, I was just like, whoa, this is amazing. And because he starts talking about Deepak Chopra and Jim Rohn and Zig Ziglar. And I'm like, right, I've got to get their stuff and their stuff. And their audio books, audio books, books everywhere. And of course, you know what it's like. Once you read a couple of good books and then they recommend three or four good books, all of a sudden, you find some good influencers on social media, listen to some good podcasts and bang. Your mind is open. Uh, And so that was the first step of getting out of debt because then I realized I was doing it all wrong. 
Um, and, you know, you don't know what you don't know. But I, I was spending more than I was earning. I was paying myself last. I now know that you should never spend more than you earn and you should always pay yourself first. I didn't budget my money. I just spent it and I was left with debt. I didn't manage my emotional spending. So if I felt down or depressed or lonely or insignificant, I'd go and spend money to try and alleviate that emotion. I now know the different emotional emotion, the different emotions that you experience that will erode your wealth. Anything too manic and high, whoa, let's celebrate, whoa, let's go out, spend all your money. Anything too low and depressed, oh, I feel really depressed. I'm going to go and spend my money to make myself feel, feel better. You know, like how people eat to make themselves feel better. And, and I was that guy and I was buying these expensive suits that I couldn't afford and these expensive designer clothes. Um, if I earn 200 quid a week, I was spending 300 quid a week racking up the credit card debt to try and make myself feel better about myself. Um, and then what happens is when you see credit card bills, you just feel worse about yourself again. And it becomes like this spiral that goes out of control. And uh, that was um, that was the start. And what I find is one that, you know, the more you know, the, the, the more you realize there's a lot more to learn. And, um, and, you know, that's very humbling, but also very exciting. Uh, and so then it's just been a constant journey for me for the last 10 years. I now read the equivalent of 500 books or podcasts, of course, on audio two times speed. Otherwise, I'd never get through that um, a year. Uh, and so, you know, I just find that the more you learn, the more you earn and, you know, the more you understand and the more wisdom you gain, the more you're able to apply that in areas of your life. And you, you, you find when you've read a few thousand books that the commonalities and the laws are, are sort of sewn within them all. Of course, you have to filter through a lot of opinion and, you know, sometimes completely polarized opposite opinion and, you know, some stories and anecdotes. But you get there, you get all these fundamentals. All right. So Irene, Irene Santanier has asked, in the mastermind groups you belong to, what's the mindset of those individuals towards wealth and money? Well, I can tell you one thing. None, none of us are sitting around there going, oh, I hate money. Oh, money doesn't make you happy. Oh, money makes you so depressed. Oh, life isn't about money. Oh, money, I hate my money. I'll, I'll tell you what, let's all give our money away. Oh, no, no, I can't. I'm not having it. You have it. Oh, no, I'm not having it. This money, I hate this money. I'm not having it. You have it. You have it. No, 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 you have it. No, I'm not having it. None of us are doing that. You know, and there's all these poor people going, oh, well, money doesn't buy happiness. Well, I'll tell you what, money will not make you necessarily any happier than you already are as a person, but it will buy you the things that exaggerate the happiness. And let me just, this, just put this to you, for you, your friends, or for anyone listening or watching who may consider this money happiness dichotomy. If all things were equal, everything else in your life, you know, your family, your friends, everything you've got is equal. And in one parallel universe, you have no money. And one parallel universe, you have an opulent amount of money. And by the way, with that opulent amount of money, you're allowed to spend it on who you want. You're allowed to give it away to charity. You're allowed to do what you want with it. Which one do you think is going to make you happier? And there's a chapter in this book where I, I did that parallel universe um, kind of hypothetical scenario, really, where everything else is equal. Because if you think about it, for us to be able to know if money makes you happy or not, you've got to do an equal split test where money is the only variable and everything else has to be the same. Because some people who are very rich, yeah, they're not very happy, but that's because they're overweight or that's because they're going through a divorce or that's because they're going through a court case or, you know, whatever. But it's not the money itself. So money will only make you more of who you are. It will exaggerate your traits. It doesn't make you a bad person or a good person. It exaggerates who you are. So if you sort out who you are, then money will exaggerate those traits. And if you sort out your values and sort out how you contribute to society and sort out the good things that you do and you set up your philanthropic cause and you know, and you, uh, you share a lot of your information and, and your work for free on podcasts and audiobooks and live feeds and everything else and you help people and you care about people and you know, what you, what the price you offer or the value you give is just a little bit more so it's a bargain rather than a rip-off. And if you do all of these things, which are all universal laws of money, I've got a, a formula which I write about in, de in detail in money called the wealth formula. Uh, w equals V plus F E times L. 
and it's a formula that I designed. Um, borrowed some parts from billionaires and millionaires who've taught me, uh, and, and I came up with this formula, and it, it, it's never failed. It always works. Wealth equals value plus fair exchange times leverage. Um, yeah, so in these mastermind groups I'm in, well, well, you know, we openly talk about money. We talk about how much we've earned or how much we might have made in a product or a launch or a service, and we share it. And there's probably a little bit of bravado going on when you've got a load of millionaire, multi-millionaires hanging around or trying to out-multi-millionaire each other. You know, there's a bit of that going on. So you've got to divide some of the numbers sometimes by a third just to get the reality. But, hey, you know, these things go. You know, this is people. You're putting people in a room after all. But actually... Some of the mastermind groups I'm in, they're actually the most sharing of any groups I'm in. If you're in the corporate world and you had a load of bosses, none of them are going to share what they know because they don't want you to have their job. So they're defensive. So hopefully that answers your question, Irene. A very open-minded view of money. Um, you know, we, we embrace money. We, we, we endeavor to learn more about it. But of course, everyone's different. We're all individuals as well as a group. Okay, so James Shipway has asked, Rob, if you had to distill your money knowledge down, what would the 20% be of it that you'd share, which would get around 80% of the results you're looking for? Okay, so invest in assets that pay uh, income, passive or residual or recurring. Yes, you have to set to forget, but I would invest your time and money into assets rather than exchanging your time for money. So you can waste time, you can spend time and you can invest time. There's the, you know, the, the three models of time. And I talk a lot about how the time and money are related in the book because they're, they're exclusive and inclusive of each other. They're separate, but they're together. Um, so if you waste time, well, you know what? Sometimes you can just waste time because you want to relax. That's fine. But you know, you, you know what it's like. Six hours a day, you can waste time on emails or answering other people's emergencies. Uh, and, um, you know, like, where did that go? Um, so let's forget that because we're going to assume you're not going to waste too much of your time. Uh, spending time is fine. If you're worth £1,000 an hour, you can consult, consult out at £10,000 a day or you can charge £10,000 for your keynote speech. It's all right selling your time. Why not? You've got enough of it. But as you get older in life, you'll have less of it. And also you may feel like a um, bit of a hired gun or you might feel like you're being a bit pimped, you know, if you're selling your time. Hey, if you love what you do, do it. But I don't mind selling my time sometimes on my terms. Um, and I still do to this day sell some of my time. Sometimes I'm getting paid my um, uh, keynote speech um, fee um, for some of the talks that I'm doing recently. And, you know, it's a decent amount of money. It doesn't change my world. Um, but, you know, it's good. It's worth it for me. Um, but I wouldn't want to do that six days a week. Um, and what I want to do with at least three quarters of my time is invest in assets. Assets could be, you know, this, this book money is an asset for me because I'm, once it's done, hopefully it'll be relevant in 50 or 60 or 80 years, like Think and Grow Rich and um, Richest Man in Babylon, other money books that are relevant for, you know, decades. Um, you know, if I create this live feed video and this podcast, these are assets that, you know, will hopefully build my brand and get reach and get shared. Um, if I have online membership sites, if I create information products out of what I know, and we run 550 course days a year. Um, that progressive property and unlimited success. And that's just what I've learned and what my partners have learned over the years that we've got good at something and we can help other people. And we, we create packages around that. Um, so, you know, really, I'd say that's the 20% that makes the 80%. Of course, then how you diversify your income, how you insure your income, how you reinvest your income, how you protect your income, um, how you innovate, how you come up with new ideas, how you get wormhole uh, opportunities, um, you know, how you're able to see an opportunity, how you build systems and processes, they're all part of it. 
Um, but the first thing, the investing time into assets rather than exchanging time for money, I'd say is the biggest thing. And, you know, what, what, what you want to try and do is build assets over time. You know, you've got one book and I've now got nine. So you've got two, then nine, then 15, then 20. You've got audio books. You know, you might have, if you're a musician, you've got CDs, you've got um, merchandise, you know, the, the T-shirts and all the gear that you sell. Um, and then you, you sell out your gig and the gig is the exchanging the time for money. But the, the, the music CDs or the, the on iTunes and the merchandise, that's the product, that's the assets that pays the residual income and the licenses. And of course, when your music goes on radio and when your music goes on TV, you get the license fee. Slade make £500,000 a year, most of it around Christmas when their Christmas number one comes out. So I'm always looking at mm, what asset can I create out of my knowledge or my experience or my product or my IP, um, whether it's a, the progressive property network that's an asset or whether it's my personal brand that's an asset or, you know, a piece of system or, a, you know, a, sorry, a piece of software or a system. Um, and I think if you think about it over time, you can create dozens, you know, multiple streams of income and multiple assets that create multiple streams of income. All right. Is the amount of money just relative to your lifestyle? If you have more money, do you just end up spending more, buying more expensive house, cars, clothes, food, holidays, etc.? Um, and how do you stop having more money from changing who you are as a person? So this is called, this is from Susie Edwards. So thank you, Susie. Um, yeah, money is relative to your lifestyle. And I know some people who probably don't earn more than five grand a month and they've got, you know, quite a lot of spare money. And they just have a humble lifestyle and they're happy with that. And that's cool. And um, I'm not going to knock anyone for who they are and what they do. Um... You know, there's definitely also on the other side of it, people who earn a quarter of a million, half a million or a million a year and they're getting poorer every year because they're spending more than they earn. So I've already answered on three videos today about spending less than you earn as a rule. So really what you want to do, Susie and everyone is what is your ideal lifestyle? Design it. You know, people have these vision boards, you know, you work out what would I like to do every year? Now, I might want four holidays. I might you know, want two week holidays four times a year eight weeks holidays I might want these two nice cars or three nice cars two of them racy and one of them practical you know I might want x house in x location you know and I might want x spending money um, and then you can set that and then what you'll do is you'll hopefully build assets and exchange your time and create products and give great service and you'll earn that money but things will change. Things will change because we are human beings and we have a desire for growth. Now, some people who are a bit sort of glass half empty and, and, and um, pessimistic, they call that greed. Well, yeah, greed and growth are like that fine line, um, you know, like genius and insanity are the fine line. Where, where is growth, i.e. more, more contribution equals more money, more value, more service. And where is it greed, where it's like just money at all costs and screwing everyone? Um, and, you know, like sometimes you're sort of a bit out of balance or you're swinging between. Um, and I know if money becomes my sole focus, I have to be careful that I'm be not, not being greedy. But if money is the outcome and the result of the great work I'm doing, then I know I'm in balance and it's growth. But what you got to do is add inflation in because every 15 years, the value of money halves. So if you want, if 20 grand a month gives you an opulent lifestyle, and I give you the four stepping stones to wealth in this book, Money, all the way from... Um, being financially secure to financially opulent is four levels. Now, if you want financial opulence, that's fine. But every 15 years, you've got to double it because the value of money halves because inflation roughly erodes or halves the value of money every 15 years. So you've got to be thinking about this as well. So, yeah, there is some natural growth because if you're not growing, you're decaying. And sometimes unsatisfied, sort of uh, being unsatisfied makes you go and create better products and services and innovate and improve and beat your competition and push, push, push. And then that creates a better service and a better experience and then more better money for you. But if you're a slave to that and it's like, I'm never happy, I'm never happy because I've bought a Ferrari and now I want a Lamborghini and now I want, a, you know, the Lycan Supersport or the Koenigsegg or whatever. 
and you just look at someone else's yeah yeah then you're in then you're in you're trapped so don't let it rule you you rule it um but you know like i think that a lot of people think that growth is greed it's not growth is growth human beings purpose is to grow if we don't grow we die if we don't evolve which means grow improve cells divide you know then we decay and if we decay as a species we're gone and that is not our nature um so, yeah, and, and Susie, I don't think money changes you. I think money exaggerates your traits. I think money will only make you more of what you already are and who you already are. If you're a hippie philanthropist who can't keep any money because you're guilty about having anything and you give it all away, you get a load of money, you'll give it all away. Look at these people who win the, the lottery. I studied them. I wrote loads of case studies about them in this book. Uh, and most of them, if not all of them, end up with no money. And some of them are in, even in more debt two years later. And some of them say it ruined their life. And there was nothing to do with the money. It was because the money was exaggerating the traits. It was fueling their existing personality already. So when you learn to value money, honor money, respect money, love money, manage money, master money, no more, make more, give more. And the event tickets that go with this is called make, manage and master money. Then you have a good relationship with it. Um, money's actually made me a better person because I think I was less confident. I think I was less giving. I think I was more skeptical. I think I was more pessimistic. I think I was more negative when I was poor 11 years ago and before. Other traits that have come out of me that I might think are better, other people might perceive maybe not as good because you have that, um, you need to have that natural balance, don't you? Um, but certainly my life's a lot better um, with money than without money. And I can certainly do more with money and without money. You know, if I didn't have assets to pay passive income, I wouldn't be able to do this podcast for free with no ads. You know, there's loads of ads on loads of these podcasts because the people need the money. So they're selling their soul and selling the, 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 the art and the integrity of their work because they need the money. So they're selling out. Um, and people like that might accuse me of you know being a wealthy capitalist, except I can do this podcast and this live feed video for free with no ads and, and, and not pitching you nothing other than a 10 quid book um, because I've got assets and passive income that allow me to do that. And, you know, if you want to be more creative, I was at a talk and a, a creative design guy was asking about a, a piece of work he did. Um, and I said to him, well, you know what, if you want to be more creative, surely more money will enable you to be more creative. If you're a video guy, let's say you do videos, you want to do really artistic videos, would the best lens, the best camera, the best location, you know, the best, um, you know, the best team, the best editor, would that make your um, work better? Yeah. Would that need a lot more money to do that? Yeah. So does the money form the art? Yeah. Is money spiritual in that it fuels the great spiritual creative work? Yeah. So money is um, sort of perceived as material. And then all the, the happiness and the gifts and the fluffiness is perceived as, as spiritual. But actually money is as spiritual as anything else because um, money is created from spirit. You know, we created money. Money is made by machines, but the machines were made by man. We create the money. Money is the universal exchange of value. It's the way that we measure value and worth and we exchange our energy between each other. We exchange the value, the service, how we interdependently um, survive and thrive. That's all it is. Uh, and, you know, that that piece of paper, that note or that one or naught digit on a screen that just passes across our intention, whether it's to give you value or to buy a magazine of bullets and go and kill a load of people. It, it's, it's, it's intention. It's ethereal energy. It's not real. It's not it's not the things that we place on it as meaning. What we place on it as meaning is who we are, not what it is. Um, and I think that that's important to discuss. And by the way, for the last time now, if you grab one copy of money uh, and just message me or tag in this thread your receipt 
then I will give you two tickets to the Make, Manage and Master Money event. Two days where you can learn how to become wealthy following these two rules that I've just shared with you. I can make you rich, or at least I can help make you rich. I can't, you know, I could give you the money, but it wouldn't make you rich because you might go and spend it. Um, you'll only um, manage money better um, once you learn how to manage money better. And I could give you a lot more money and you wouldn't know how to manage it. You know, money will exaggerate your traits. It will only make you more of who you already are. So at this two-day event, I've got someone who was turning over 1.5 billion in the 80s to do a brand new keynote speech for you. Um, It's not like a multi-seller event. I'm paying him to come. I'm also paying a cryptocurrency speaker to come and talk to you about Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Going to teach you to make, manage, master money. I'm going to do a couple of keynote speeches, including teaching you how to build a, a global brand and monetize that. So it's a brand new event. It's probably going to be the best event we've ever run. November is sold out. December has just a handful of places. And January we've just launched has a few more places. So that's just for getting one copy and tagging in your screenshot or PMing me. If you get two copies, I'm going to give you an online six-month coaching program with me. So me and just 200 other people across the world can tune in and we'll brainstorm and mastermind. I'm going to have six themes each month, you know, marketing, making money, managing money, growing money, investing, speculating. I'll have different themes around money and generating cash. Um, I'll I'll deliver a keynote speech on each online training and then you can just ask all your questions and I'll answer them or stay as long as it needs to be. That's just for two copies. Tag yourself in or um, show me a screenshot or PM me. But then for five copies, and we've only got about 15 places of these left, so you need to be quick. Um, You can actually come to my HQ, meet me one to one. Um, You know, I'll answer your personal questions around money. I'll sign your books. We'll have lunch together. Um, It's sort of like a a closed mastermind session. When I say one to one, you can ask me your personal questions. We'll talk to each other face to face. But you'll be in one of my training rooms with about 75 other people, maybe only 50. It depends on um, how many we can, um, how many we'll position in the room between 50 and 75. Um, now, I'm probably not going to do any of these anymore, any of these mastermind sessions, and I've done a couple uh, over the last year or two, or this online coaching program, because what I'm doing is I'm, I'm productizing a lot of my time and a lot of my information. You know, as you know, I, I spend hours a day putting out free information, and we've got thousands of hours of my work now, and I've run my mouth off to the point where I'm losing my voice. Um, so I'm going to be automating and productizing and scaling a lot of this information where a lot of it's going to be online or recorded on, on continuity programs. Um, So you help me create all of these assets and that's why I'm prepared to give you these gifts just for getting one, three or five copies of the book. Right. So remember, if you don't risk anything, you risk everything. Remember that you can be rich if you commit to learning about it and then testing it and taking continued action. Um, And if I can help you in any way, let me know. Make sure you tag in your screenshots because um, on Thursday, the 19th of October, which is either today or today, because if you're watching it live, it's today. And if you're watching it tomorrow, it's today. Um, This book goes live and um, it's going to be mad on launch day. Um, The audio book has already made a huge difference in the world. And I've got some exciting projects on the go, TV shows, translation rights across the world, all sorts of things which I can't um, exactly tell you yet because they're still in negotiation. Um, And I think this book's going to change the world. And all the profits are going to my new foundation. Every single um, penny or pound that I make personally out of the book will go to this foundation. Um, You know, my goal is with this to finance my um, foundation with one million pounds to get it started. I'm not going to commit yet where I'm going to invest the money or how I'm going to help education. But that is what I'm going to do in the third world and for young entrepreneurs especially. Um, But I want to raise through the sales of this one million pounds um, so I can build this uh, philanthropic cause 
Most of the billionaires who have been the biggest billionaires in, in the world ever over history, they did exactly the same. Most universities, libraries and hospitals that you know famously were set up by billionaire capitalists, philanthropists. So I'm modelling the traits of the greats myself. Um, and hey, you can help me do that. So thanks for tuning in. Uh, go get your book right now because you're not going to get another chance to get all these bonuses. And if you've got any questions, comments, any way I can help you at all, post it in the thread or in the Disruptive Entrepreneurs community and we'll keep the dialogue going. Have a great day.